Welcome to The Populist. This is Kevin O'Hare. So this week's podcast actually is going to have two parts. So episode five and episode six you will need to listen to for this week's class material. Episode five is going to discuss defining democracy. And to do this, I interview Professor Craig Kaufman from here at the University of Oregon. Um, And we're going to draw on the Schumpeter, Shavorsky, and Diamond articles that are assigned for this week. It also goes along nicely with the textbook. So we're going to talk about the classical, the minimalist or procedural, and maximalist or substantive definitions of democracy. We'll go into some history about how they came about, and then we'll also get into the meat of it, which is how these definitions are different. Okay, because that's important to understand the difference between the minimalist and maximalist definitions of democracy. The second episode, episode six, kind of continues this but asks questions like, how do countries become democratic? What are transitions to democracy like? And then what is democratic consolidation? All right, so again, make sure that you're listening to both of these episodes for this week. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Professor Craig Kaufman. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Populist, Episode 5. <laughs> I even named the podcast. I've got a guest here today. Uh, this is Professor Craig Kaufman. He's an associate professor of political science here at the University of Oregon. And he was also participating faculty in environmental studies and Latin American studies. And he also teaches this exact same class mm-hmm. just in the face-to-face version where you actually go to a classroom and not the online version. So... Welcome. Glad Thank you. Yeah. yeah, glad to be here. Glad that you could make it. So before we get into today's topic, which was democracy and really defining democracy, um, what are some of the misconceptions that you come across with students or people just in general when it comes to democracy? What are these things floating in their head they think it is but are kind of misconceptions? Um, yeah, I would answer that. I want to say, I guess, two things about that. Okay. Before I get into the real misconceptions, I guess I would point out that um, a lot of students' misconceptions aren't really misconceptions in the sense that uh, a lot of students will have different associations of what democracy is or looks like. Okay. Uh, And they may not realize that that may be just one or two pieces in this basket of goods that may – and so – you know, when I when I hear the question, what I often hear is that what I often see is that uh, students think democracy is different things. Okay. Like different students will think democracy are different things, and they're, I'm hesitant to call them pure misconceptions because they're not wholly wrong. Like there are okay. reasons why they have these associations, and I'm sure we'll talk about that mm-hmm. in a little bit because this is a remnant of the fact that the defi- definition of democracy has changed. Sure. Over time, right? And Absolutely. so um, so that's one thing. So I, I guess in terms of the misconception, so students are often maybe not aware, just haven't thought that thought about the fact that democracy can really mean different things to different people, right? Okay. Uh, and I mean, can, can you throw an example out there of something <clears throat> that would just, – just something simple and short? 
Uh, yeah, and not only the misconception is that is not only that d- democracy can mean different things to different people, but that that different students might associate democracy with different features that are actually in conflict with one another, right? Okay. Uh, and that's one of the interesting things about democracy is it has uh, associations with different things that are actually in in conflict with one another. And I'll give you an example. Okay. Right? So uh, a lot of people might just intuitively think, oh, democracy is about majority rule, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or rule by the people, you know, majority. Sure. And, and those we two vote. things tend to be confli- can get conflated, right? right? You let the people vote, you let majority rule. Um, but of course, when we think about that for a second, uh, we, you know, if the you know we would be if the majority said uh, you know people with blue eyes can't eat dinner in these restaurants right mm-hmm. we would say oh, that's not really democratic that doesn't seem right sure. like because the idea of majority rule conflicts with another founding principle of modern democracy which is rule of law right, right? that everybody should be treated the same mm-hmm. or under the law. Right. Uh, and that's just one kind of quick example. Um, and again, this is the reason why we associate these two conflicting things with the same concept. Democracy has to do with the fact that democracy has evolved and its meaning over time. Absolutely. But, but before we move to that, I guess the, I do want to answer your question more specifically. <laughs> okay. Because uh, there are some misconceptions. And I think the biggest one is the misconception that democracy necessarily means capitalism or that capitalism and democracy necessarily go together or these two concepts get conflated, right? This sure. idea that, that democracy means that you must have free and open markets, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not true. Well, uh, they can uh, be in conflict a lot of the right, time. Right, right, and it's not true in both directions, right? Like there are a lot of... Um, capitalist systems mm-hmm. that are authoritarian and those do really well meaning meaning <laughs> in other words meaning a, a capitalist economic regime mm-hmm. uh, can support an authoritarian political regime just as much as it can support a democratic political regime oh absolutely and yeah. vice versa you can have functioning democracies that are not um, that don't have really free open markets, right? And a lot of young democracies tend not to. They tend to have more regulated markets, and so we call those social democracies. Yeah. So your listeners who may be fans of Bernie Sanders are familiar with the concept of social democracy, right? But it's a democracy. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's not that it's it's not that it's um, you know, um, it's not that advocates like Bernie Sanders are opposed to markets. They're just saying that you know you need to have regulated markets. Mm-hmm. Um, so my point is just it's important not to conflate economic regimes with political regimes. Right. It's two separate two things. Two separate things. Yeah. They can be mixed and matched in different ways in the real world they are. So that's one misconception. Okay. Uh, another misconception is that democracies are um, necessarily more efficient administratively or e- more easily governed. This may sound <laughs> odd, probably a lot of people, but... Uh, because obviously that's not true, right? Well, I mean, we see this with people advocating for China's type system where they say, look, they can get things done. If they want to address yeah. climate change, they just right, right. No, go uh, at it. Right. I think it's pretty clear that authoritarian regimes are actually more efficient administratively. But mm-hmm. 
there are other re- reasons why you may or may not choose them. Uh, but anyway, that's one, you know. Um, and I guess the last thing I would say is, you know, some students um, might have the misconception that all democracies kind of work the same and are structured the same and function the same, and they really don't. There's a whole bunch of different ways that you can structure democracies. Right. And, and they can function very differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that stuff we'll get into yeah. next week and the week after when we talk about right. the institutions and the different case studies of how different legislators work and, and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, okay, so getting into this issue of defining democracy. So really, we, we come with two concepts. You've got kind of the minimalist or procedural or electoral definition, and then you have the maximalist or liberal democratic definition. So, And there's actually a third, which is the classical definition. And the, Yes, the classical definition, which Schumpeter talks about. Do you yeah. want to talk about that? Real yeah, quick? I think, so I sense you're going towards the difference between minimalist and maximalist definitions. And if yeah. we're, we're going to go there, I think it's important, or it might be easier to first uh, talk about the classical definition, because the minimalist definition... Uh, as the reading by Schumpeter mm-hmm. like shows, was really developed in opposition or as a reaction to the classical definition, which had held for thousands of years, right mm-hmm. up until modern times, um, meaning the last couple of, like in our Right, so centuries. going all the way back to ancient Greece. This yeah, going at, yeah, from ancient Greece all the way through the founding of the United States and our founding fathers all the way up to the 1960s. The, we were pretty much democracy held, was held by kind of like this classical definition. And that's why the Schumpeter reading was so revolutionary at the time, or the 50s, let's say, right? Sure. Uh, where, um, where that's when we really start to see the development of what we think now of as modern, de- <laughs> modern definitions of democracies. Um, and, and then the maximalist definition came as a reaction to the minimalist definition. So it's kind of like, it might make sense to talk about them. So it's almost order. like they happen in stages. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they did happen in stages and for logical reasons because they were developed in reaction to to each other. To each other, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, but the the classical definition <clears throat> says what exactly? Yeah. So the classical definition really goes back to Aristotle, right? Uh, and it's important to emphasize that Aristotle. The point of Aristotle's uh, work to try to define different regimes, as we would call them was he had this normative, meaning moral, um, endeavor to try to figure out what's the best way you can structure a society, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's important to keep that in mind because his answer is shaped by that, right? Yeah. Uh, and so for him, he's trying to figure out, okay, what's the best way to structure a society? And um, and by that raises the question of, well, what's best? Like, what's good? Right, how do you define best? How you define best and how you define good. And for Aristotle, uh, the idea was that, well, the regime that's going to produce the best common good, right? And you can see why that's then Schumpeter's, why this is important for Schumpeter's reaction, right? right? So up until, you know, really modern times, there was this assumption that political regimes should be designed in a way to try to provide for the common good collective good and there's this assumption that you could you could try to distill from people like the common interest sure right and so um 
a lot of people probably won't be aware of the fact that for Aristotle, the way he defined democracy was actually ruled by the poor, not ruled by the majority. Well, and the poor were the majority. Right. And so, he, wasn't, he wasn't a fan of what he called no, democracy. No, and, and democracy was considered to be a um, – uh, it was one of his uh, – I forgot the term he uses, but it's like a – like a problematic regime or type. It was not, you know, so he had these three right. idea, you know, good types of regimes and he had the, per, you know, and he had these three perverted regimes, I think uh-huh. is the term he used. Right. And so democracy was a perverted regime, meaning it was unstable. It was going to always devolve into, um, like well, a strong man. T- yeah. Demagogue. demagogue yeah, yeah. This idea. Right. And, and so for Aristotle, when he looked at all the different constitutions in the Greek of Greek city states and he compared, so he was one of the first comparative, Political scientist, yeah, in that way, right? He he used the comparative method to try to figure that out, answer this research question. Uh, and what he noticed, or one of the first things he concluded, is that it really matters, you know, whether or not the poor are in charge or the rich are in charge. That really, for he saw societies as fundamentally structured along class lines, mm-hmm. right? And that you could, um, right? And so he for. He defined regimes where you had rule by the rich as aristocracies or oligarchies. Well, you know, you had, I don't want to get too much into the details of Aristotle, but, you know, these, you had kind of like a perverted version of what might happen if just sort of the rich ruled only in their interest, and that would be an oligarchy. Uh, but if you then had enlightened rich people who, rule, who tried to rule on behalf of the common good, then that would be an aristocracy. And that's what he thought was actually the... Like your philosopher king. Yeah, your, well, you had the philosopher king, right, as uh-huh. his ideal, that was his ideal best regime. Right. But it's unrealistic because, you know, how many great philosopher key kings do you get? Right. So the next yeah. best is like aristocracy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, <clears throat> and then the perverted version of, of that is an oligarchy where mm-hmm. you just have the rich centrally ruling for their behalf at the expense of the, you know, the poor majority. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you had democracy was ruled by the poor majority in their own interest at the expense, you know, at the, at the expense of at people expense, that yeah. have, have money and resources. Right. Right. And, and so it got over time, it's been associated with rule by the majority, but it's only because in virtually in every society, the poor, are the majority, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so, any, uh, and so, so for then thousands of years, look, including up through the founding of the United States, uh, the, the democracy was not considered to be a good regime type that you should strive to have, right? Like mm-hmm. the founding fathers, if you read the Federalist Papers and others, were concerned about that, right? They were concerned about mob rule, which is what democracy was thought to devolve into and they the problem they said was was that you know poor people are driven by their their um, like it's right the animal instincts is what mm-hmm. Aristotle called them their their passions right right um, because often they're struggling to meet basic needs and so you will have some charismatic leader that that the Greeks called a demagogue, who would come in and just inflame the passions of the poor masses, convincing them that they're doing things in their own interest when in reality they're, he's, he or she is just mobilizing them for the, in the interests of the, the demagogue. And so democracies would inevitably devolve into authoritarian you know, tyranny, ruled by like some tyrant. 
uh, until the masses turned on the tyrant and tore them down, and then you'd have like an unstable. And so it would just be this unstable cycle of conflict, right, between mob rule and violence and you know, tyrants, essentially. Yeah. Right? So the founding fathers of the United States Constitution recognized, so they consciously didn't structure the U.S. as a classical democracy. They structured it as a republic, right? Right. And most students kind of know the difference between that. Well, should know that, or at least should know that. come across it. Right, right. And the point being that, that you, you don't let... So Aristotle recognized that the... He, he said, look, it's going to be problematic to have just aristocrats ruling in their own in- interest, and the poor are going to be uselessly... In a stable regime, you actually need to have some way for both of those classes to participate and have some stake mm-hmm. in the regime to survive, right, to be stable. Right. Um, and so he called that a mixed regime, right? And that's the ideal thing. We now call those republics, right? So the, mm-hmm. our founding fathers were classical Renaissance men, mm-hmm. and they read a lot about this, and they came to agree with Aristotle's conclusion that you needed some sort of mixed regime. We called it, they called it a republic, right? Mm-hmm. Where you, you give the people some say in a directly elected lower house, our house of representatives, uh, but there's checks on that because it was fully expected that the House of Representatives would be a bunch of rabble-rousing troublemakers who would want, you know, no taxes and lots of government services, right? Yep. Um, and so the idea is that you needed to have wealthy, enlightened thinkers to check that, and that was supposed to be in the Senate, mm-hmm. right? And so originally the Senate was not directly elected, um, and it was supposed to be wise, wealthy sages, you know, who could... <laughs> stall the, the house, you know, the, in, the passion, you know, put, uh, dampen the flames of passion from right. the house, right? right. Uh, and similarly, their worst nightmare of the Founding Fathers would be this idea that you would have mob, that the, pa- that the passion of the majority of citizens could be inflamed uh, to elect a demagogue as president. Mm-hmm. I didn't think people should be able to directly elect presidents because they were concerned with what Aristotle, like what Aristotle described, and so they created the Electoral College, right? Specifically for it, because there was this idea that you would have wealthy, enlightened thinkers who would be less likely to be swayed by their passions. To that, if the people wanted to elect some charismatic demagogue, they would say, "No, we're going to not do that," and we're, you know, of course that I that system sort of decayed over time where we have the electoral sure. college just quickly became a stamp for anyway but that's right but my point is is trying to explain why democracy was seen as a form of tyranny and mm-hmm. so and that's important uh, and that what's happened is that the, the definition of tyranny has changed over time it used to be that the, the major form of tyranny that people were concerned about were like the masses, mob rule, right? Mm-hmm. Who would trample on the rights of and freedoms of people and right, would just kind of uh, lead to instability and conflict. And so, but now in our modern definition, ty- that's not tyranny. Tyranny is... Um, the opposite. The opposite, right? right? Tyranny is now defined in the modern era as limitations of freedom by the state or by the government or mm-hmm. just like a handful of people who control, right? Uh, and our, modernists, our modern definitions of democracy 
are now really kind of the what was originally thought of as a republic, mm-hmm. right? These, uh, you know, and that's why these elements of a republic that were meant to um, to protect against the classical elements of democracy, like rule of law, checks and balances across different branches of government, uh, rights, protection of minority rights, constitutionalism that will protect certain freedoms and enhance political rights. Those are now fundamental elements of, of modern democracy, mm-hmm. um, but would not have been considered, would have been considered anti-democratic according to classical definitions. And I'll give you a quick example of that, that uh, yeah, which fine. would be judicial review. And that's the last mm-hmm. thing I'll say on this, right? So this idea of judicial review, this idea that you have checks and balances between the executive, you know, that, that the judiciary, the courts, could... You know, if the legislature, which is supposed to represent the people, right. passed a law that clearly discriminated or violated the rights of some segment of society, that the courts could come in and say, no, that law is unconstitutional because the Constitution says, you know, has the rule of law that you have to pr- treat, you know, provide equal rights to everybody. Mm-hmm. In our country, it's the Bill of Rights, right? Right. Um, this idea that an unelected handful of unelected individuals who are essentially enforcing an agreement that was made by people maybe 200 years ago will now restrict the ability of a present generation to decide how they want to rule themselves would uh, would be considered undemocratic by Aristotle's standard but it's a core definition of what we consider to be democratic today. Right. Well, I mean, it fits right in with rule of law, which is the rule of law. It is the rule of law. Yeah. So now in modern democracy, you have kind of three elements. You've got to have competition among elites, you know, for who's going to represent the people and make decisions in mm-hmm. a representative fashion. You've got to have real free and fair competition for that leadership rule. Uh, and you've got to have then the rule of law, meaning all segments of society are sort of treated equally under the law and no segment of society is above the law. Again, it's the idea of uh, checks on power by the Mm -hmm. state. Uh, And that you've got to have rights and liberties in order to ensure the full participation in politics by any segment of society. You can't sort of have some groups unable to participate. Okay, so that's what we've come to. That's what we've come to now. Those three elements. Yeah, those so three if, elements. if we go back to the the minimalist, uh, the minimalist or the procedural definition. Mm-hmm. So it basically says that all you need is free and fair elections. Yeah, and and you're a you're a democracy if that's the case. If there's free competition, so how does that then lead to what we consider democracy today? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Well, the second, last question seems different from the first. Okay. In other words, how did we get there question? In other words, <laughs> why do we get the change? Is that or? Um, or I, I guess. Um, well, let me, let me point out two things. Okay. One thing is that modern definitions of democracy are really concerned with freedom. So the reason mm-hmm. why we have the switch is because what we think of democracy is the regime that kind of evolved in the UK over many hundreds of years gradually. And it, and it 
it evolved that way because of this ideology of liberalism that evolved over centuries. Mm-hmm. And I mean liberalism in the capital L, where right, right. freedom. No, I, it's an ideology that espouses freedom. So open mm-hmm. markets, free markets, you free, know, thought, free thought, freedom of speech, freedom of speech things like that. Protection against arbitrary rule by monarchs. Mm-hmm. Right? So rule of law. So rule of law, right? And so you get the, in in the UK, right, you get the Magna Carta, you get over time, get the evolution of these ideas that you should have checks and balance. You should have constraints Mm -hmm. on the monarch, the sovereign, uh, that, and you do that by protections for individual liberty. Everybody should be, you know, rule of law and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Sure. To do that, then you have to have then some participation and decision making over important Right, and so in the UK, you gradually get the, the first the House of Nobles, you know, the House of, Lords. House of Lords, right? The nobles get together and say, "Well, we want to say in how much we're taxed, right?" Right, and then over time, after you get a middle class, you have then wealthy non-nobles saying, "Well, we're the merchants; we're actually making money. Like we also want to say in trade policy and how we're taxed." And you get the House of Commons, right? And so anyway, because of that, we have this association now that liberalism. And democracy kind of go together hand in hand and are kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. That's the story of how you get this modern notion of liberal democracy that's really based around freedom and rule of law mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. The minimalist definition comes out, Schumpeter, the Schumpeter piece kind of really highlights how that happened, right? The, mm-hmm. Schumpeter is really the first one to question this idea that there really is a common good that democracy can elicit, or that even, or you should try, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Schumpeter was an economist by training, and he did a bunch of really interesting research on how on marketing advertisement, right? And he, he's the first one to question this. You know, a lot of people assume that oh, marketers just give the consumers what they want, and they're just telling you know, advertisements are just a reflection of the common will or desire of the of People, right? And Schumpeter was like, no, <laughs> people don't actually really know what they want. Marketers create perceptions of mm-hmm. desire through marketing and advertisement, right? Like, and that's probably an idea that we can relate to, sure. right? Like that, you know, any parent knows that that's true, <laughs> right? <laughs> you don't let your kids watch the, you know. Anyway, there's yeah. a reason why they put the candy shelf in the grocery store right by the checkout aisle, right? Like, Absolutely. Uh, Anyway, so he also then sees relevance to the political realm, right? And says, you know what? It's also not true that there's a collective interest that elected representatives or the elites in society are going to reflect. It's the opposite, actually. Elites in society who control the media and they control are going to essentially tell people what their interests are, right? Mm -hmm. In today's world, I think people can see that, right? Uh, conservatives will tune in to talk radio, conservative talk radio on Fox, and liberals will tune in to The Daily Show and MSNBC or whatever. NPR. NPR like and whatever. And we learn what we we learn what we're interested in and what yeah. we could get, right? Like that. Uh, and so Schumpeter says, well, if that's true, then there's really no common good. It's really just. You know, and Shavorsky sort of expands on it. Says, mm-hmm. you know, democracy isn't about trying to kind of come some, develop some common good. We should just accept the fact that it's really just a conflict resolution mechanism. It's a way mm-hmm. to try to, to channel, elite rivalry for control through a nonviolent 
mechanism. Right. Right. And and that's really what it is. And so elections are useful as a way to 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 tr- make transparent who's got more support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he gives the example of it. You're basically taking all the supporters of one side and all the supporters of the other, and you can see who has bigger numbers. That if there eventually was a conflict, here's yeah. who would win. And the key to, to a procedural democracy like that is that elites will only participate, right? So the alternative is war, right? right. Conflict. Or you just um, divide into two separate states and each take your, you know, mm-hmm. you either have civil war or you divide into separate states and each one gets to control their territory, right? Right. Um, the al- so if that's the alternative, then the question is why would elites agree to share power, right? That's really mm-hmm. the question. Um, and there's kind of two answers to that in the procedural sense, which is one is they've got to believe they're part of the same national identity, uh-huh. right? So they're, they're, the, the idea of just separating and kind of have their own isn't acceptable because they see themselves as part of the same mm-hmm. national project. And then they've got to see themselves. So given that, uh, they've got to either duke it out or share power. Mm-hmm. And you've the elites have to get to the point where they feel they've got more to win by agreeing to, to, agreeing to common set of rules that they all play by that they think are fair uh, rather than, right? And democracy in the modern sense rests on this fragile perception of trust that all sides will play fairly by the same rules. And if that decays, the whole house of cards crumbles, mm-hmm. basically. So in, in that sense, it kind of creates stability when they buy into this power sharing that I'll have, I'll have a chance in the future. Yeah, right. So if I, if I lose this time around, I'll agree to accept the loss because in four years, I believe that if I win in four years that you'll abide by the rules and allow me to rule. I'll get my chance mm-hmm. later, right? So there is a certain amount of like social trust that has to be there right. for that. Um, and the elections provide, you know, they tell the losers, look, if you're going to take it to the streets, you know, the other side's going to have more, you know, if it really goes to that, mm-hmm. you know, which group, it kind of sort of makes transparency, which group's going to have more support and is likely to win. Mm-hmm. It also tells the winner that, hey, if you... If you just, you know, you can't just, because you won, you can't just simply now use your power to change the rules to consolidate your power so that there's no, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, because then when it, the power switches, then those those that get into power after that, they get to use all of the Well, it's things. a warning. It's a war- The election is supposed to be a warning to those that, in, who win that if you use your power to just consolidate your rule so that there's no more free and fair elections, that the opposition has a sizable enough constituency that they can have a formidable resistance. Mm-hmm. So the idea is it makes transparent who, you know, how much support each side has. And the idea is that no side, you know, hopefully elections show that no side has a Again, sort of reinforces this perception that both sides or all sides are better off playing within the system and living to play another day Mm -hmm. than to try to defect. Right. Um, And that's why elections are important, and that's why you focus on the procedure of elections. 
and why competition is and why important. competition is important. Okay, so but okay, so so we have this procedural definition of of democracy, but is that I mean is that really it? Like if if we're going to I mean it seems like they're leaving quite a bit out based on what we talked about earlier and based on what we think democracy is yeah. just in and when you push people like Shavorsky on this, they will, of course, immediately admit that, well, you know, to have real competition, that does imply participation, right? Like you can't mm-hmm. have real competition if some people can't participate. That's not really competitive. Well, and it also right? implies rule of law. And it implies rule of law, right? So you get, you know, the, but the problem is if you, you know, so you, that brings up criticisms by people like Larry Diamond, who said, you know, look, if you, the reason why people like Shavorsky say the procedural minimalist definition is useful is because you can structure democracies all different kinds of ways, Mm -hmm. and countries do, right? And if you want to try to, if you're, you know, if you want to understand why are some countries democratic and others are not, you've got to be able to measure clearly in an objective way which countries are democratic and which ones are not, right? Right. And because you can structure democracies, you know, democracies may have a whole bunch of different qualities that you're better off with a kind of a minimalist, simple definition, if that's your goal, um, and you need cl- in order to have precise measurements. Mm-hmm. And researchers want to have precise measurements. Right. You can have, you know. The problem with that, and so that's well and good, and that's a good reason, and that's why people do that. The problem is, of course, that um, if you do that, we know that there are all kinds of countries out there that have competitive free and fair elections, but that have qualities that just don't sit right with us, that we think of as undemocratic, mm-hmm. right? So, for example, there are you know, during the 70s, there were all these regimes in Latin America where you would have free and fair elections among multiple parties where the parties rotated office, different parties won over time, but they weren't really democratic because whoever won the election, they didn't really have power, that they were just puppets of the military who was who were pulling the strings behind the scenes, right? So, you know, one of the criteria, you know, people like Diamond would say, look, you've got to have all of the things that the minimalist definition says, mm-hmm. but on top of that, you have to have some other qualities, uh, including you've got to have you can't have a situation where you have unaccountable unelected people holding power you know manipulating by you know mm-hmm. uh, right. you know that might be the military and that's why civilian control of the military is now considered by many by li- advocates of liberal democracy to be um, you know a, a necessary criteria mm-hmm. um, g- <laughs> given the current news of you know about Trump's you know, in the anonymous review in the New York Times, it's maybe worth noting that, you know, another fear has always been, you know, unelected bureaucrats running the show behind the scenes, right? And that's why, you know, allegations that Trump's staff is actually running things without, you know, right, subverting his authority. Uh, I mean, that's undemocratic by the modern definition of liberal democracy for that reason. Yeah. Um, right. And so, and then there are, you know, you could have, again, free and fair competitive elections, but if you don't allow 
African Americans to vote, as the U.S. did not for many. <laughs> yeah, definitely. De- decades or you know, women had, or or, or, or or women, or, right? Yeah. Or if, you, in other words, like if you if you have large segments of your population that can't participate, that you know, mm-hmm. uh, that's not going to be captured in the procedural definite in measurements, procedural right. measurements explicitly. Um, you know, you could have. Similarly, you know, you could have free and fair elections and everybody participate, meaning everybody's eligible to vote and everybody's eligible to run for office. But, you know, if the government restricts freedom of speech and freedom of assembly such that they can harass opposition parties such that they can't really campaign, you know, they can't, you know. Well, then the competition aspect then the competition. is really gone. Or, or yeah, it's procedurally diminished. it can be there, but in reality it's diminished, right? And that's kind of the point of the maximalist the advocates of the maximalist definition, which is this focus on these minimal procedures hide. You know, you can you can measure it in a way that will look like it's fully democratic in a procedural sense, but in reality it's not functioning the way we know democracies should function. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why they say you've got to also measure uh, protections of civil liberties, protections for political rights, uh, horizontal accountability, not just vertical accountability. In okay, other so, words, yeah, go, go into these because Diamond talks about them and I think it's important to understand the different ways accountability works. Yeah, so, um, you know, everyone agrees, meaning both minimalists and maximalists, agree that you've got to have vertical accountability, this idea that uh, you know, what that means is average people uh, are able to somehow hold accountable the, um, you know, say the president or their elected, that elected representatives mm-hmm. have to be held accountable to, you know, their voters, say, right. right? Now, minimalists would say, well, you can just do that, you know, that's what elections essentially do. Um, Maximalists would say, mm, not really, because you can have a lot of regimes, as have existed in Latin America and others, where, you know, you have elections, elected representatives get elected, and there's maybe rotation in office between parties. But once they're in power, the elected leaders don't do anything to represent the interests of the voters. They just enrich themselves. They're corrupt. They, you know, they <laughs> engage in crony capitalism, Right. right? Uh, and you get in this cycle where voters, you know, get mad at the crony capitalists or, you know, the corrupt politicians from one party and vote party Y. Party Y gets in power and then they get mad at the corrupt, you know, unrepresentative parties in crony Y. And so they vote for a party X and you just have these swings back and forth. But in reality, the population is like, screw all you guys. Like, none of you are representing my interests. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, these are known as partyocracies. Um Right, and so there's this notion that you've got to have accountability mechanisms in between elections. Like, it's not enough to just, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, if elections are only every two years or every four years, there has to be something in between right. those intervals. And, and for accountability to happen, you've got to have transparency. You know, people have to know mm-hmm. what's actually happening, which is why, um, you know, Free independent media is considered to be a foundation of democracy. If you, if there isn't a common set of truths that's transparent about what's happening that people know about, there's no way to hold leaders accountable. You can't have this vertical accountability. It all breaks down, which is why there's so much concern about attacks on on the independent media. 
Right. Not only here in the United States, but around the world right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so then horizontal accountability is this idea that um, there's got to be accountability between different branches of government um, in order to constrain executive power so that you don't just have executives, presidents or prime ministers, who just, again, sort of it devolves into a, what's called a delegative democracy where they're elected through free and fair elections, but once in office... They just start ruling by decree and whim and, you know. Yeah, well, and that goes back to the Supreme Court. The, right. Or the, yeah, the judicial, judicial review, review, right? Yeah. So that, that, that horizontal accountability can be structured in different ways by, mm-hmm. in different democratic regimes. Uh, you don't have to have judicial review as the only way. There, there are some democracies like the UK that don't have judicial review, but they build right. in – they build in horizontal accountability in other ways, um, which I'm sure you'll get to in the class, like through the uh, votes of no confidence and mm-hmm. things like that. But but increasingly, countries, most regimes are now having some sort of judicial review. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, I think that <laughs> I think that Enough? covered mercy covered quite quite a bit. I know that uh, you're tight on tight on time yeah. here. And uh, we should probably okay. get you out. But, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on, and hopefully this is useful to everybody that Okay, listens. yeah, I hope so. All right. All right. Bye. Bye.